All right, all, here we go. We've got a photo competition sponsored by Lenscoat and Cotton Carrier, brought to you by Wild and Exposed Podcast, giving you, the photographer, an opportunity just to win some sweet prizes. These images won't be used for anything else. We have prizes like the Cotton Carrier Steady Shot, Lenscoat Raincoat, Camera Protection Gear, as well as a pair of 8x42 binoculars from Maven Optics, a Wyoming company, that will be given to a random participant. Prizes for the top three, as well as the random prize, will be awarded to the winner of the, the photo contest, which will be judged by Wild and Exposed Podcast. But before that, you, the public, will have a chance to vote and get your favorite images into the top 25. Check the link on the bio, the Wild and Exposed page on Instagram, Facebook, as well as the website. Also check Lens Coat and Cotton Carrier. You can find the bio, or excuse me, the link on their pages as well, which will take you to the page where you're going to upload your image and enter to win that random prize as well. Again, please hit the link in the Wild and Exposed bio on Instagram or on the website and join us as we have this spring photo contest with some incredible prizes from Cotton Carrier and Lens Coat valued at well over $300, as well as that sweet pair of Maven 8x42 C1 binoculars. Good luck, and can't wait to see the images you guys have produced this year. Welcome to Wild and Exposed. Your number one adventure, nature, and outdoor photography podcast. Wild and Exposed is hosted by Mike Morrow, Ron Hayes, Jason Loftus, and Mark Raycroft. Thanks for tuning in. So welcome to another episode of Wild and Exposed podcast. Uh, we're coming to you from all over the western United States tonight. Uh, we've got a guest, Jake Davis. Jake, welcome. Thank you. Good to be here. And we're joined. I'm joined by Michael Morrow and Jason Loftus in Utah and Colorado. So, Jake, typically we get these things started with, you know, just kind of an opening question, get to know you question. What's your favorite ever outdoor experience? Well, you start with a tough one. Um, <laughs> okay, just going off the top of my head, I think that my experience photographing a spirit bear. Uh, might take the cake. Um, I think just because it took so many years to get that encounter, uh, and this was in the Great Bear Rainforest uh, in Canada, uh, and it ended up having two, like two or three hours very close with this bear. Um, he trusted us, and we just got some really incredible behavior. So I think that might be my <laughs> my number one, but it's, it sure is hard to hard to pick one. I think that might be my number one, too, if it ever happens. Yeah. <laughs> have you tried i've had it planned a couple times but got yeah. shut down a yeah but I, times, had a, so. I had a trip there this past fall that obviously got shut down mm-hmm. so yeah i'm looking forward to, to getting back up there but yeah pretty the whole ecosystem is just incredible i mean you have obviously the spirit bear which is a white black bear very unusual subject to photograph but the whole time you're just like you're in this very remote area, you know, you're pretty much only accessing it by boat or like float plane. And it's, it's kind of these fjord lands and this old growth forest. And you've just got, you've got humpbacks, you have orcas, you have grizzly bears, you have coastal wolves, you have bald eagles, you have fog, 
good light, just about, about everything you could ask for. <laughs> yeah, that old growth forest is kind of otherworldly when you come from eastern Wyoming. I've never seen anything like that until, yeah. you know, even going to northern Alberta, we got into it a little bit, just mm-hmm. kind of scratched surface of what that would look like. But Jake, just for our listeners, um, tell us a little bit about yourself. Where where are you out of, and and how did you come to get started in photography? Sure. So I'm based in in Jackson Hole in in the Greater Yellowstone ecosystem. I started going out there actually when I was a kid. Uh, my family would take a trip out there every summer, and we'd spend a month or two. Um, pretty much every year of my life, my, my dad would work. Um, he would play in a music festival out there for a couple months, and so that's where my passion for photography really developed. Uh, and, and for wildlife, it was just spending time uh, in that ecosystem from a pretty young age, from about ten or twelve. I was running around with a well. At first, it was a disposable camera that my mom bought us, and uh, I I burned through it in like the first. <laughs> I don't know. I think I burned, burned through it on the flight out. <laughs> uh, and so I think they knew early on that I, it was something I was just really, really passionate about. Um, yeah. I mean, as long as I can remember, uh, there has been nothing that has like captured my imagination more than just, you know, spending time with wildlife in wild places. So Jackson's a really good place to do that. There's mm-hmm. nothing wrong with Jackson hole. If you're a wildlife person. No. So what, what led you to pursue wildlife as a career? Because you're full-time professional, correct? Mm-hmm. Yeah. I didn't really consider much else. I, I just kind of went for it. Um, I knew that that's just what I wanted to be doing. That's I wanted to be spending my time outside um, and with wildlife. And I really thought that if it was at least worth uh, the effort to see if I could make it work, because if I didn't give it a chance, I, I knew I would always regret that. Um, and so it was, you know, it was slow going at first trying to figure out what, what was going to be my business model and what worked for me. Um, but yeah, I just, it started off as kind of, it's the dream, I guess, is if you can combine your work and, um, and fun and I'm you know, thankful I've been able to do that. So, so what was your path? I mean, everybody has a different path to get here, right? Some of us are yeah. went to school for biology and somehow we ended mm-hmm. up in it. What, how did yours progress from? that first disposable camera to where you're at now? Well, so currently I do a lot more in video actually than I do in stills and almost exclusively I'm working in natural history. Um, but I started off doing stills and I think the first income I had from photography was, um, doing like retail. So, um, within the first couple of years, I started a greeting card line. Uh, that I was able to sell. I went to trade shows and I was able to get it into, uh, eventually into like Yellowstone National Park gift uh, gift shops and then gift shops around Jackson and then spread out, um, you know, through different uh, into different parks throughout the country. So that was uh, that was kind of the first thing I, I went after to try to get that revenue stream going. Uh, and I, I guess the whole idea from the beginning was just try to figure out a way to, to make a little bit of money. To, I mean, I was living in my car at first in Jackson for the first couple of years, which is not an unusual story in Jackson Hole. <laughs> um, <laughs> And, but it was fine because I could just, you know, I could go to bed and wake up and be on location where I needed to be if I was chasing bears or whatever I was doing. Um, and so it just helped pay those bills. Um, and I, I started not long after that, I started doing photography workshops. 
Um, and so in Grand Teton and Yellowstone National Park. Uh, I did a little bit of guiding, I guess, with, with some local companies before that. Um, but once I got once I got the workshop tour business going, uh, I was, you know, really able to sustain myself out there. And uh, I kind of used that to, to fund uh, some of these other personal projects that I was really passionate about, um, like stories that I really wanted to go after and document in the ecosystem, um, which, you know, I did that for seven years, basically doing, doing the workshops and then using whatever revenue I was getting from that to kind of put it into developing these other projects. And that eventually led to pitching some stories to um, some TV shows that are, you know, some wildlife TV shows. And that's where I am now. So that's the... <laughs> That's the short version of it, but I'm just kind of <laughs> little stepping stones along the way. Yeah. And those aren't easy stepping stones. Each one of those is a major undertaking. Just getting yeah. your cards out. I mean, that is like, it's a lesson in uh, rejection, right? I mean, you take Absolutely. it to five stores yep. and maybe one will talk to you. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, most say no. Yeah, and a lot of the, even the, a lot of the counts that I eventually did get were not a yes the first time. You know, some of them took years, five years to get, and you have turnover with buyers and you try again or, you know, the same person and you try again. So, yeah. Yeah. It wasn't easy. I mean, I, you know, you pay, you give the summary of it and it sounds like, oh, that's a really you know, straightforward path to get there. I mean, like anything, there's real ups and downs. Um, and there were def definitely times where I was, uh, you know, discouraged or wondering, like, you know, is this going to work? But I always kind of had... Um, I had a pretty clear uh, idea in my head of where I wanted to be and what I wanted to be doing. And so I think that was uh, sufficient motivation to, to push me through a lot of that rejection or just, you know, whatever ups and downs you go through along the way. So I think that's really important. I mean, for me, if, it, if, it, if I wasn't going after something that I had like a really strong passion for and I knew I just loved that more than anything else, I don't think I would have had the, uh, um, you know, fortitude to, to, stick it out <laughs> to get to what I, what I'm doing right now is, uh, I really love. And so it's just, you know, and I don't, I probably will stick with this for a while working in, in the, the television side of things, but who are you working for right now? Um, is it share as much as you can? Yeah, sure. So the past few years has been, uh, it's a new landmark series for national geographic. Um, and that's kind of, pretty much wrapping up. I have a few more shoots I'm doing on that. Uh, and then I'm picking up with the BBC for the planet earth three. So it's, um, you know, the first one was like kind of a game changer in, in natural history. It was like, I remember exactly where I was when I saw the trailer for planet earth, the, the very first one when I was a kid. And so they were now on the third one. They released a second one a few years ago. And, um, eventually if we can ever travel again, we're going to start filming for the third one. So that's really cool. <laughs> yeah. What was the progression to go from stills to then see that, Hey, video might be the thing to do. I started a long time ago yeah. with stills and then I kept seeing this competition in the stills world that was just so mm -hmm. fierce. So then I would pack a video camera and I would try to do both. And then of course you're, you're doing both halfway, you know, you'd never get good at either one of them and you kind of got to commit or you got to pick one day and say, this is my stills day. And then another day for video or whatever. Mm -hmm. yeah. And then finally I just kind of moved into video and stayed with it. What was your path to find that video path? Yeah, it's a good question. I, 
you know, for a long time, it was just, I was just doing stills and I was just, I just loved it. Like if I, if I wasn't doing it for work, it was just, if I had any, any free moment, that's what I would be doing was taking pictures. Um, after I did that for a few years. And like you said, you start to see like, there's a lot of competition. There's a lot of, I mean, even more so now, I feel like than 10 years ago, uh, or lots of, a lot more so. Um, but I started looking for ways to, I just felt like I really needed to differentiate uh, what I was doing or find, find what was like, what I could contribute that was unique to this, this industry. Uh, if I was able, if I was going to be able to grow there. And so that led me to, um, I started working a lot with biologists and, and scientists in the ecosystem. I had always been just like many people, very interested in grizzly bears. They're just, they're so fascinating to sit, to watch. And you can just tell there's a lot going on in that head. Um, um, so I started, you know, building some relationships with like the grizzly bear study team and some, uh, more local people working with bears and somehow I stumbled across, I was reading research and started reading about grizzly bears digging up pine cones, um, that squirrels had buried in the ground. And I, I kind of had in my head, I've been thinking, I want to get into some kind of story that hasn't really been told yet. Um, and some like to really dig into the ecology of it and like, um, get a unique perspective. And I was starting to get interested in camera trapping at that point. Um, cause I felt like that was a, a very unique take on wildlife photography and, and cinematography. And so, yeah, so I, I pretty much just settled on, on that story and I decided I was going to go figure out everything there was to know about this particular phenomenon. And so that's what I did for five years. Um, I found sites where bears were digging up these cones from squirrels and uh, they're digging up its white bark pine. So it, it may be something you're familiar with. It's a tree that's um, in pretty bad shape throughout the ecosystem, but the cones that it uh, the seeds that are in those cones are like highly nutritious. They're a coveted resource in the ecosystem. And so, uh, yeah, I just picked that as my personal project and just dove in. And then for, you know, for four or five years, I focused on almost exclusively that, like that was, if 399 was out with the Cubs or like, you know, whatever else was going on in the park that everybody else was going to shoot, I, I didn't care. Like I had just a single track mind, like I was going to figure out how to tell the story and do it well. Um, and in the process of doing that, it started off as stills and I started getting some stuff that was very unique um, behavior. And I just thought, man, this, for this particular type of storytelling, you're just missing so much when you're just taking pictures. Uh, and I had always loved the still image and something about that singular moment, right? And I still do. But from a behavioral standpoint and like being able to see and learn about what's going on, like from even like, you know, from an ecological standpoint, um, video was just felt like the way to go. And so that was, uh, that was why I made that pivot, um, and started investing in video gear. And that's kind of what led me to work to where I am now is eventually being able to have a reel and pitch that story. Um, so that is now a sequence in this show that's coming out. So how hard was it to go from, from the video to the, or from the stills to the video? Is that, is that something you already had kind of figured out in your brain or was that something where you had the stills? Down well, in? so this, a lot of this, that particular project is with camera traps, like remote camera systems. So in some ways, I think that made my transition a bit easier because it's a locked off shot and you're not pulling focus. There's not, um, there are some difference, differences in camera settings and stuff like that. And you have to think about a sequence. Like you're not thinking about just one cool shot. You're thinking about 
I'm setting up 12 different cameras that are all filming the same thing at the same time, but they're different focal lengths and different positions. So you're thinking a bit differently about it, but I think that made it maybe an easier transition for me. Uh, whereas to now, like I'm shooting long lens and, and doing other stuff where like, I think that jump is, is maybe a, a little bit harder. Um, but you know, I mean, some of it is just a lot of it, I guess is just practice, right? Like just learning, like how to, you're not using autofocus. Well, eventually I think we all will be using autofocus for video, but at the moment we're still pulling focus manually. Um, and you have to be very, very steady on, you know, on your, on the tripod and like, you have to think, you just have to think differently about it. It's not about one moment. It's about, you know, it's about 30 seconds unfolding. And, and unlike with, uh, you know, with stills where you can fire off, you know, 15 frames a second and just get one good one when you're shooting, you know, behavior on a video, you can like, you need to do it perfectly for at least 10 seconds. Um, so, you know, I, I think that challenge for me was really, I really have enjoyed that challenge um, because I, it's not that photography was easy, but I think it was just, you know, it was a different way to grow and to challenge myself. Cause like at some point, you know, you get your autofocus down and you're shooting the same subjects and you're kind of just on autopilot. And so having to like step back and be a little bit more maybe aware of what you were doing for me was a really uh, enjoyable experience. And still well, so is. You started with the camera traps. You said what? So how many years ago was that when you kind of started with that? Uh, about six, five, six years ago, starting with stills. So yeah. that from there to even now, the change in technology and I mean, it's just got to be Huge. every year is something new and it's not yeah. like it's a, it's just what you said. It's not the same. It's not autopilot at all. Right. Cause every year yeah. it's something new. It's a new camera. It's a new lens. It's a new sensor. It's a new something. How hard yeah. is that? Or do you enjoy that challenge? Do you enjoy that? I mean, it's kind of cool to go into yeah. a situation where you got it figured out, but it's also kind of fun to figure it out, especially if you're going to up your game, right? So if you're going to take it to that next level, if you're using that's this right. new camera or whatever, that excitement is there. Yeah, that's right. So if you're, I'm always putting that pressure on myself to try to be at the front edge of, you know, whatever that is. And a lot of that is, you know, you have to be on up to date with the new technology. Um, I, I enjoy... I enjoy like the the user experience part of it, like having to figure it out and, and finding new applications for newer technology. I think that's fun. I don't enjoy the cost part of it. <laughs> <laughs> it's a hard game to play as an individual. Um, and you know, I thought I thought that still photography equipment was expensive, like you know, six hundred and a few and a few camera bodies. But you talk about like you know, we're, we're going from a of twelve, thirteen thousand dollar lens as, as a six hundred millimeter to the for example, like the cinema lens we use, the fifty to one thousand is seventy grand. <laughs> so it's like it's just a yeah. It's a hard it's a hard game to play. And if you're you're making a, that kind of investment, which I don't own one of those lenses, but um if you're making that kind of investment, it's and then if in, within a few years, you know, something or same with like a red camera and you know, a new body comes out, it's just, you know, it's hard. <laughs> Yeah. So talking about talking about that and then go back to what you just said about setting up a a 12 camera shot. Yeah. You started trying to capture some of this bear behavior. Mm -hmm. So kind of walk us through that. We're not going to ask you to give us any trade secrets, but walk us sure. through that process. What kind of equipment you used for 12 angles? Yeah. You know, how did that shot come together? So a lot of 
what I'm doing now is, is, um, come from the work that I did with the bears and, and partly just the story that I was working on and also the methods that I kind of really refined in that time. Um, so I kind of had this like vision of, and I, I wasn't the first person ever to do a camera trap sequence, but in my head, I had like, I could see the potential of what I could do with that technology. And, you know, you could use one and one camera and get a, and get a still photo, which is, can be very cool. Um, but I could, you know, if I could get the money for 12 of them and I could have them all running at the same time, like think about, about all the different cuts and angles you could get, um, and how you could really tell a story. And so, yeah, so that's, that's what I started doing with the bears. I've, the technology has, has changed a lot. I've used a lot of different systems at the time. It was, um, some custom built systems. Um, and I worked with, a, um, a guy named Jeff in, in Nebraska, we built some, uh, I was working with the Sony a7S II because it was a really good low light body. Actually, I still work with it a lot. Um, so you can, you know, you're capturing behavior when it was way too dark to shoot stills. Um, and also not using, not using, not having to use lights for some of that like dawn and dusk um, behavior, which was really nice. So, yeah. And that's what I mean. Now I'm on shoots and I'm using 30 cam cameras. To, for one sequence so but i don't have to buy them all say <laughs> <laughs> so that gets easier when somebody else is paying for it right that's right yeah <laughs> well i would say it gets easier cost wise but then just the level of trying to you know especially if you're trying to get one sequence with 12 cameras i mean just think about trying to keep those cameras out of your shots the other cameras, yeah, right no, that's exactly right it, it gets progressively harder after the third camera I mean, it's like put. I will just sit there and scratch my head for hours. It's like putting a, a puzzle together. Um, no, you're exactly right. Sometimes you have to hide them. Um, yeah, the more you add, the more complicated that part gets. There's a lot of a lot of uh, issues that come up with a system that is that complicated. We get. I, I guess I play with the camera traps a little bit, not a lot, yeah. but a little bit. And you always think, oh, I'm going to be really sly and I'm going to put this out there and this animal is going to walk right through and I'm going to get this mm -hmm. cool shot and they're not even going to notice yeah. the camera. Yeah. They know the camera's there the minute they always. step foot, right? Always. How, how yeah. does that affect your thought process? When you're setting up that sequence, it's like, okay, I know that yeah. this bear, this mountain lion or this whatever is going to see this camera, but maybe I can poach a shot from over here because the attention is going to be over. I mean, do you, is that going through your mind too? Is that a totally, yeah, totally. And it really depends on the subject, um, and the individual, right? So like when I very, like when I first started with grizzly bears, I mean, this was just with the stills. Um, and I did that very first setup and I came back a couple of days later, uh, everything was just trashed. And I, and I, at first I was like, wow, like really excited. Cause I thought, well, hopefully I got some shots, you know, before that happened. Um, it turns out he, the bear had, had arrived on the scene and then walked around the perimeter and trashed everything, stood up on all the metal poles, just like destroyed it and then went in and did his thing afterwards. So I got nothing. So that was the first time I encountered that issue. And so I went back in the next day and I put up two, you know, a couple cameras so that there was no way that he would get to one without at least getting on the camera, you know, on the other camera. So I would get some shots and that's exactly what happened. But yeah, it depends on, you know, on the subject. So grizzly bears, for example, I don't, I don't necessarily worry about them, um, like being afraid of the gear and so being deterred from coming in. 
it's more a concern for the gear itself um, and what they're going to do to it. But I have found that within like, they usually come in if it's, if it's the first time that they've seen the gear, they're pretty suspicious of it and they knock it all over. But as soon as they knock it over, they don't care. Like they don't really eat it. They just knock it over. And it's like once they've dominated it and it doesn't resist it. I mean, it's the same thing. Like that's why you play dead, right? When you're attacked by a bear. And I think it's the same thing. It's like, they're like, hmm, they knock it over. Like, eh, well, that was boring and time to move on. Black bears are the opposite. They just are the most destructive creatures on the planet. They eat everything. Um, and they, I mean, I've had many sites I've had to just give up on because the black bears just are <laughs> impossible. So the mountain lions are pretty chill for the most part, but you do have some cats that, that don't like it and will detour around it. It's hidden miss, but for the most part, they're pretty, um, they don't, they're not freaked out by it. What is the one thing that you've got on camera? Like, so let's say you're going in to shoot a grizzly bear sequence. Yeah. What's that one shot where you got that was like, holy, it wasn't a bear. It was another animal that came through your setup and you're like, wow, that was super cool. I mean, is there wolverines? Is there skunks? Is there badgers? Is there wolves? I mean, what, what have been some of the yeah. really cool moments that have happened for you? Well, that's an easy one. I'm not sh I think I can talk about this. We'll go ahead. I'll go ahead and, and say it. And then if we have to go back, we can edit it. Um, so it was on, on these grizzly bear sites, which, so I started off on this project, just wanting to document grizzly bears raiding these white bark pine cones from these, these squirrel middens. Uh, what I didn't know at the time is that I was about to stumble into what was a much bigger story and had maybe pretty, it was very significant for conservation and ecology in the, in the ecosystem. Because we knew that these pine cones were important for other other species, but I don't think we had fully realized like how other animals were using these sites. And so, you know, for example, I uh, I've had nine owls, nine uh, long-eared owls at once, uh, several years in a row on these sites, um, hunting the the uh, voles that are underneath the surface of the middens. And it's like a consistent thing that like we're learning that actually these owls are. Um, and then in this case, I think it was a bunch of chicks that had just like fledged nearby. Um, but all of these, all of the different sites I work on have owls that are like predating on the rodents that live in this, uh, environment that the squirrels create with the midden, which is kind of basically just like mulch, right? It's all torn up earth. It's been used to bury cones for years and years. Um, you also have, uh, long-tailed weasels and pine martens that are, that are there consistently also hunting. Uh, the pine martens are also eating seeds. Uh, you have porcupines that are showing up and also stealing cones from squirrels, which like we didn't know that was a thing. We have uh, northern flying squirrels coming in and stealing cones from the red squirrels. You have there's just a lot going on, and so I think I guess that's not one particular thing, but it was just like this um, wow, mind blown at how much is actually going on here. And, and that's what's so cool about camera trapping to me is it's you just get to see behavior that you can't really see otherwise. You know, it's like having, it's the same as like your trail cams on your property that like the hunters use and stuff, but you're just getting a very unique perspective uh, into the natural world. Um, and I mean, so, you know, scientists and researchers use trail cams a lot more now than they used to even just, um, you know, for their part of research doing population and density estimates and stuff like that. But um, certainly what I'm doing is more of like the qualitative side of just like, um, focusing on, you know, particular subjects and um, what that behavior looks like on like a case by case basis. But 
So when you're setting up that sequence and you're like, okay, I'm going to get this bear coming through. Mm-hmm. And then you get all this footage and you see all this other activity. Yeah. Then you're like, okay, now I need 10 more cameras <laughs> yeah, because now I need to be camera? down on the ground no, and now I, I need to have bigger exactly. lens. I mean, what's that like? I mean, looking at the footage has got to be like Christmas every time, right? Because you're just so it excited is. to see that's, what you got. That's exactly what I say. It's all, it always is like Christmas morning when you're checking a camera. But um, you're right. It just makes it even more complicated because what do you, if you're, if you're trying to film a Pine Martin, uh, you need to be, you know, different focal lengths, different angles. You need to be a lot closer to your subject than a grizzly bear. Um, so you kind of have to pick and choose. Um, I, I mean, for me, I focused on trying to, at first, just document what was going on because I also felt like it was pretty important from a scientific standpoint. Um, and so I wanted to have some wide coverage where we could just see what was going on and then have some a lot more mids. Uh, as I started doing more, like, you know, focusing on a sequence that's more story driven, then you, you also have direction because you're working with a producer director and they, they'll tell you exactly like, hey, we need more tights. Like, you know, the first year was getting more of our wides and mids. And like this year, let's go for those really risky detail shots. Like we want to we want to see the paw pull the cone out of the hole, you know, stuff like that. Or we want to see like the owl and we, we want it to be a headshot on this branch. So, um yeah, it helps. You want a it helps. needle in yeah, a haystack. So many, yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's interesting. Actually, I was listening to a podcast today, another podcast that's unrelated, but they were talking about the squirrels and what they how they do this. And yeah. apparently they don't do it with just the white bark pine, right? That's they right. do it across the country, right? Different squirrels. And uh, it's it, uh, black bears will raid the nests up back in the yeah. east and up north or whatever, right? But um, mm-hmm. it, it's a very interesting story. But um, one of the questions I have for you is when you set up your traps like that, are you ever just kind of like also hanging out and spend some time with your still camera and just kind of watching things mm-hmm. unfold? And have you ever done that and had something cool happen? Um, sometimes I do. It, it depends. Um, I would say for the most part, I'm usually getting out of there because I'm, I'm always very conscious of my presence on this, um, what is like a pretty sensitive site. And so I just feel like the less time I spend there, the better and the more chances of the bears getting the food they need and, and me getting the behavior that I want. But um, certainly I have been in there at times and like I've had, I've had the weasels come in and, and run around when I've been there. I've had the Martins, I've had the owls, I've had everything. I've had bears walk on, you know, had several bears walk right in on me, <laughs> them, you know, way closer than they should be, <laughs> but they're sneaky, man. You think that like for a big, you know, a big animal like that, that you'd hear them a mile away they're They are stealthy. I mean, it's yeah. just, you know, I was sitting, laying down with a squirrel, filming him, and looked up and was like, "Okay, hi." <laughs> Let me just back you, out of here. Yeah. <laughs> Can you explain? It's it's a midden, right? M i d e n. I used to think, you know, the way I used to remember it is, I used to sell pictures through Minden Pictures, so it was Minden. <laughs> Right. And that's how I'd remember it. But I knew it wasn't Minden. It was more Midden. And I'd see them all over. You see them all over Alaska um, yeah. when you're out hiking. I mean, yeah. with the red squirrels, they just make those. And can you just describe what it is? Because I'm not sure that everybody even knows what we're talking about. Yeah, sure. So a Midden is it's basically a squirrel's stash of pine cones that, that they prepare for the winter. So in this particular case, these are like in the greater Yellowstone ecosystem. These are red squirrels. Um, and come, you know, August, starting about August, the cones ripen in in all the trees and they go to work and they start like 
80% of their activity from August to mid-October is just harvesting cones. Like they just go nonstop uh, and they cache them all in their sites, which admitting is basically also, it's just a squirrel's territory. So it's like, you know, they're, I don't know, 10 by like, some of my sites are like 10 by 15 feet or some are a little bit bigger. They kind of vary, but I mean, some can be like as big as a living room. Um, and yeah, so they just, they bury all their cones in there. And then when there's 10 feet of snow on top of it or whatever there is in the winter, they, they tunnel down through and they, and they have enough food to make it through. Um, cause you got to think, I mean, it's, they go from, they start nesting in like November. Uh, and, in, and a lot of this is happening, at least on the, my, on my sites, it's in the high country. And so, you know, the snow's not melted until July. So they're, they're relying on that food stash for a long time. So, and like you said, they do harvest more than white bark pine. Um, so even though the bears come in and the porcupines come in and the nutcrackers come in and steal the pine cones, there's still a lot of other cones that the squirrels can um, feed on throughout the winter. So uh, the only, you know, the bears are only interested in the white bark pine. So yeah. what I think about when I see a midden like that is think of a, a baseball dugout where the, everybody on the team is uh, chewing sunflower seeds yep. and they spit out all the, the shells and yeah. then there's just this pile of shells. Right. And then you're like, mm-hmm. Holy this, but yeah. un- mixed in with all these piles of just bits and pieces of these pine codes are the actual seeds and cones and all that stuff within this big humongous pile. Right. Is yeah. It sounds, yes. I, so I think, it sounds like what you're describing is like a, a lot of the times the squirrels will have like their favorite perch where they will eat. And so that's like, you'll have a big pile of seed husks that piles up over time. So that's going to be located within the midden, but the midden is likely a larger area than that. Oh, okay. And so they are, they're usually caching cones. Um, well, sometimes they cache individual seeds and sometimes it's cones uh, and then we'll just, they'll bury them, you know, like five, six inches underneath uh, the surface of the earth. So you don't necessarily see them, but it's, you can see where they've been digging and you can see like the holes that they've punched through. Sometimes they, they will catch them up in trees. Like they get pretty creative with it. And, and I see them also, like they respond. So when like, when the bears come in and steal them all, the squirrels are very upset and they sit there and scream and then they run around frantically and then they go right back to work. But sometimes they will put them in different spots. And so like after it gets raided by a bear, sometimes they'll climb up and stash them in like, you know, if there's like a witch's broom up in a tree or if there's a hollow cavity or something like that. Which presents a whole nother set of problems for camera traps, right? Uh, yeah, you got to climb the trees. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Set up a shoot. So I know you're, you know, you're obviously using cameras. They're obviously mm-hmm. in cases. Um, but how are the triggered? How are you powering? You know, mm-hmm. again, without giving away all your trade secrets because you worked sure. at this a long time. Sure. But just kind of for everybody's information, if somebody wanted to try a, a log going across their favorite stream, yeah, how would you go about doing that? So there's, I'm currently working with uh, Cognosis, is the company that makes camera track equipment, and so um, I use another company is Contraptions, which I've uh, used some of their stuff in the past. Um, but basically, you can buy there's two different types of triggers. So there's an active trigger or, and there's a passive trigger and it really depends on what you're going after as to, to which one really fits the bill. So one of them is like, for example, if you're on a trail and you have a real pinch point, you know exactly where that animal is going through and 
what you're going for is like a travel shot, you know, something passing through, then probably an active sensor is the best option. And that's basically you have two units. There's a transmitter and a receiver. And one, it's basically just sending a signal to the, the transmitter sends a signal to the receiver. And when that signal is interrupted, it counts as a trigger. And then that will relay a signal to the camera and it will start recording. So you basically, you're anticipating where they're going to walk. Um, and in my case, I'm shooting video. And so it needs to be like, I need interframe. So I basically need, I need enough time for the cameras to be up and rolling before the mountain lion walks into the scene or whatever it is. Yeah. And, and the passive just... ones are for more for like behavior. Like if something is unfolding, like in one particular, um, you know, like if you're maybe filming a bear on a carcass or something, you know, something that's happening over maybe an hour in one, in one spot, you would probably use a passive sensor, which kind of surveys that whole area and it works off of heat. So it's, you know, seeing any, any, basically any movement within that zone, as opposed to like one particular section of a trail. So that's heat. It's not like a blade of grass could trigger it. It would be more of a, so it's a heat, it's a heat signature. So it's so yes, but it, like wind blowing grass, it, you basically have like different cells. And so when the subject moves from, depending on what your sensitivity is on your sensor, when it moves from like one cell to another, or like, you know, across three cells at one time or whatever, um, that counts as a detection and then it would trigger the camera. So yes, you, you can you have a lot of trouble with it. You have a wind or you have, you know, a limb blowing and all of that is stuff you have to just mitigate in the field. So yeah, <laughs> so it's a lot of troubleshooting. Oh my gosh. Jason I and I have imagine. talked about this. It's basically all I do is troubleshoot. <laughs> I was going to say, <laughs> Although I'm getting you're, better at it. you're mapping <laughs> things time. out in your mind nonstop, right? Yeah. Mm -hmm. So you're, but it takes a long time. I mean, it's, you know, just, to, I mean, I could spend an entire day setting up three cameras depending on the complexity of the site. So that's what I was going to say, because you've, you've got to anticipate and obviously you're going off of experience, either yeah. tracking or, you know, experience where you've, you've seen animals in a certain location. Mm -hmm. uh, but then, yeah, you've got to anticipate the the trail that they're going to take to get through, get to the midden. Mm -hmm. And then also, you know, the timing, I think, is what probably would take the longest. And that's got to just come from experience, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Let's say you're working with a producer or director from one of these channels and like, oh, so I mm -hmm. need this, this, and this. When you're setting up that camera, you're, I mean, like you're saying, you're trying to predict it. You're using manual focus, so you're predicting this manual focus spot. What's your thought process on settings? Are you going for huge amounts of depth of field? Because you've got to, right? You can't have such a shallow depth of field that you only have like one or two seconds of footage, or is that acceptable? Yeah, um, it just depends. It just depends on what, I mean, sometimes you don't have an option. You, sometimes you, can't, you can't say that. It just depends is the answer for everything photographic. So you... <laughs> <laughs> it's but if you're shooting at night like you have to shoot wide open you know or anything that's low light you just have to so like in an, in an ideal world i would have a little bit more depth of field for every shot but i just you know you can't always do that and it's and it ends up being that a lot of um a lot of the time i have to shoot shallow at least for some of the shots and so then you just have to do the best you can i mean so 
if you're shooting parallel to the way the subject is moving, you can shoot wide open and pretty much be in focus the whole time, you know, so you can at least get your wide. Um, yeah, for the tights, it's, it's really tough. It's, it is just a, you know, it's pretty quick, <laughs> a couple seconds sometimes. But it depends if they come by during the day when there's more light and the camera's able to stop down, then it's fine. But What's the yeah. biggest lens you've ever been able to use in a camera trap? Uh, 135. Because you have to keep it within a, an enclosure, right? So that's kind of your determining yeah. factor? Um, yes. Yeah, yeah, it is. I mean, certainly, I mean, you, a lot of the times you do custom builds. So, like, I mean, anything's possible. It just, I think it has probably more to do with just the needs of um, what you're shooting. And most of, like, you know, you're doing camera trapping because you're getting kind of up close and personal and getting that, that kind of look. And so even when you shoot with a, you know, 85 or a hundred, like that's, that's a pretty tight shot as is with camera trapping. So, right. you know, beyond that, if, if you're far enough away at some point, then you just would shoot on long lens and maybe be in a hide or something. So, right. So do these new cameras excite you? The, when you hear animal eye detection, are you like, uh-huh? Is that going to be the new Holy Grail, or is that like uh, I mean, just it, another gimmick? I, I mean, I think it eventually will be the Holy Grail for everything. I, like I said, I think that um, the eye tracking with for people right now that Sony has is incredible. Uh, the The animal eye tracking is not as good, but I think it's I think it's going to get there. Um, I think. I haven't shot with R5, but I've seen some videos and some, some buddies have shot with R5 and just used eye tracking. Um, and it's, it looks like it holds, you know, holds pretty well. And so, yeah, I mean, I think that, that excites me a lot. It's, um, I think it's just stuff is accelerating so quickly now, but they, I mean, even just like that new Sony announcement the other day right. about the A1. Right. It's like, yeah. So I got to know how many cameras and or lenses have you lost? Due to damage from um, doing this, <laughs> not as many as you would think. I actually, uh, I'm trying to think if I've lost. I, I mean, I've had some cameras go down and just like with shipping issues. You know, like they weren't packed. If somebody sent them to me, they weren't packed properly or something like that. But like as far as like in the field, I haven't lost anything that valuable, which is crazy. So the the housings are that solid that they are pretty much bear proof and stuff yeah it's well like i said that when the grizzlies want to they just knock it over oh and beyond trying. that like they're kind of they kind of lose interest you know black bears i've lost sensors too like i, I had yeah I, I chased a black bear with my sensor in his mouth <laughs> and never got it back give me that so. back <laughs> Yeah. you need to put one of those little what are those little devices that you can put on your backpack so you know where your backpack's at or find my find my iphone yeah you need to buy, yeah, find so my I iphone can find a, a pile of bear scat in, in a couple days <laughs> exactly i think it's i think it's interesting the point you just made that i got a, a buddy scott ramsey works for ups and he listens to the yeah. podcast so he's going to be riding around in his ups truck here in the next few weeks and he's going to hear that UPS is harder on your cameras than grizzly bears are. <laughs> That's true. Just want to just want to make that point for all you shipping <laughs> professionals. So I want to back up just a little bit. So 
with these new cameras with like the R5 and you, you say that it, it's possible and there's some excitement behind it. Do you mm -hmm. dread that? Do you're like, oh my gosh, there's another three months in the field that's just going to be trial and error and I'm just going to have to see if this is going to work or will you wait till it's pretty solid? Well, I, before I take something on a shoot, I have to have that thing like battle tested because the stakes are as you know, extraordinarily high. Uh, a lot of money goes into it. And so I'm only working with stuff I know. Um, so like I, I would not just take a, you know, an R5 out unless I, for example, or any new camera, unless I've really been able to put it through its paces. Uh, and so that is hard because there's not, there's not always time to do that. Um, I mean, I guess this year there's been a little bit more time, but <laughs> right. Um, uh, but even still, it's been pretty much, it's been pretty much nonstop. Um, and, uh, yeah, to go test a camera for a few months, like you might want to do is it's hard to find that time. So sometimes you have to take more risks than you might want to. Like I did, a, I've, I've been in a few situations where I had to put gear out that I did not get to test very much beforehand. Um, and there's always consequences for that, but I think you just, you go in kind of knowing that that's the case and you need to be, be on site and be very reactive to it. But yeah, certainly every camera has its own quirks. Right. You'd have to hedge your bets and just take enough coverage where, you know, the cameras that you got, or you're getting it, but then you hopefully that's have right. these bonus cameras that yep. might be cool. Yep, exactly. And we've yeah. talked a lot about the cameras. How about power? Uh, so they are just, lithium ion rechargeables um so like you can use uh, cognosis makes their own um i've used some big sony battery packs a lot in the past so there's a lot of different ways to do that yeah so and they're not and they using lack. solar at all i'm not because i mean you can if if you're in a situation where you need to leave it out for like a year or, or something where you can't check mm -hmm. it um a lot of the situations i'm in are I need to be more hands-on or I need to be, you know, if it's, if it's like a year where the cameras are out, I, I want to be there every six to eight weeks. Uh, and so uh, there's just, you know, you have the opportunity to address issues and swap out batteries. Mm -hmm. and, and it's a pretty, it, it's possible, but it's, um, it's, it's a pretty unusual situation where you can leave something out for, uh, that long, you know, for like a year and, and, you're going to have other things that are going to be an issue other than just battery life, you know, right. Something's like, going to get knocked over. You're just going to get dirty. It's going to get, you know, who knows. I was working on a project the other day <clears throat> we were just kind of setting it up and I've used these other cameras, just the consumer camera traps that actually will send a picture to your phone once it's been taken. Yeah. And we mm -hmm. did a big time-lapse project for a, a, a big corporate project at one point where I was just not confident leaving that stuff for six to eight weeks. Yeah. You know, not knowing. And I'm, I, for the big time-lapse project, we had a camera that would send in at least one picture a day. And that was just my little confidence thing. But when you're in the woods, <laughs> you're, yeah. you think, oh man, if I just had cell phone coverage, I could have that consumer camera that would just more or less just survey my site. That way mm -hmm. I could at least look and see if a camera has been knocked over or whatever. Mm -hmm. Do you, do you try that stuff? Is that something? Do you yeah, have a confidence totally. kind of thing? Well, so I mean, it's funny, Doug and I have just did this on, on a shoot where we put out a ton of cell cams and, and he wanted to use two. So we used, um, used two different models, the Moultrie and then the, uh, spy points, spy um, point, on yeah. each site because they're, I think they were using different carriers. And so 
yeah, but that's exactly how we use them is to monitor what's going on. Um, so yeah, it's very helpful. So you can know, did, you know, did something come and destroy the gear or is, do we need to go check on, on it? Um, you know, and even not just for camera trapping, just for any kind of site that you want to monitor that you're filming. Um, yeah, it's the, the spy points are great. They're pretty cheap too. Yeah, we, yeah. We, we use them a lot, like on, on these productions for all kinds of reasons. I guess the name of the game is just having cell phone coverage, right? Just being in the right spot where you've got it. Well, that's right. And that's, um, yeah, if you're working in, if you're working stateside, like not always, but there's a lot of times you do have enough cause you don't need much. Like I, you can get those things to send a, a picture through with just one bar. Um, but yeah, sometimes that's not an option if you're super remote. So you said you're moving toward doing some long lens work as well. Is that just project dependent? Um, I ha- so I have over the past few years been doing that and like, so some, I mean, sometimes I will just do a long lens shoot and other times I combine the two. And so it's, it's a really cool way for me to set up. I can use the traps and then shoot long lens to get some supplemental behavior. Um, yeah. And, and, or just, you know, sometimes I'll do shoots. It's just hide work where you're just sitting in the blind and you're just doing long lens and it has nothing to do with traps. So what I've run into lately mm-hmm. is they'll, someone will call BBC or net G or something and they'll, They'll be like, well, we only have enough budget for one shooter. So can you do long lens and can you do camera traps and can you rent a cable cam and can you fly a drone? And can you, I mean, they just want everything just, but they, fortunately they give you enough time, but then it's still a ton of things that you just, your brain has to be on point all the time. Yeah, you're right. I mean, that's hard. That's just, it's finding a way to get yourself the experience that you need to um, be able to say, yes, I can do that is, I mean, for me, I just, I just decided, okay, I'm going to like, I, I know I want to do this. And so I'm going to figure out how to get myself the experience that I need so that I can, I think it's a balance of, uh, not overselling yourself. Right. But also like taking things that make you feel a little bit nervous. Um, but knowing that you can come through on it. So it's, but it's like, you need to have some experience. So you like, you know, cause a lot of confidence just comes from experience and knowing that you can do it. So I don't know where I was going with that, but I think, yeah, I've, I've made a point to like, um, just get that experience. However I can, if I have to rent kit, if I have to borrow it and just on my own time, I, I just do that so that when I'm in that situation, I feel, um, that when the stakes are high that I can do the job. So, but yeah, it's hard. There's a lot. And I mean, I, some of these guys do do a lot. Um, I, I have, I also think that having a specialty is a good thing. Um, depending on, on what it is. I mean, some people are just underwater people and that's what they do. And some people are like hired for a job because they're really good at long lens, you know, but they also fly a drone for, for, for other stuff. But I think usually people are hired because they do one thing really, really well. And then they can also do these other things. So what's that one thing that, or that one shoot, what's your dream shoot? I mean, like you watch, uh, one thing that stands out in my mind is I think it was behind the scenes on Our Planet, I think was the name of the show. Mm-hmm. And yeah. you see the, the what I think they put in two years getting the Siberian Tigers. And that yeah, was that just was super sequence. cool, right? Yeah. Just a cool sequence. Mm-hmm. What's that yeah. one thing for you where you would be like, oh, that's 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 my jam. That's what I want to go do. Um, you know, I guess I, am, I, I feel very like fortunate that I, I think I'm actually doing it right now. Um, but I can't, it's under NDA, so I can't 
I can't say what it is. So we might have to revisit it when, when the shows come out, but there's, there's a sequence on the national geographic show. And then also with, um, planet earth that both of them are like, um, what I, I think my whole life, that's what I would have answered. Like, yeah, that's what I want to, that's what I would want to do work with an animal like that in a setting like that. So unfortunately I just, I can't say anymore right now, but hey, cliffhanger. Yeah, yeah, stay, it's the stay, tuned, stay tuned. Come back yep. in two years when we have Jake Davis yeah. back on the show. <laughs> there you go. That's awesome. You know, at that point, real quick, I just, I just, I was watching your video on your your landing page on your website. Um, okay. Yeah. Search of a moment. Oh yeah. And yeah. I thought you were going to say that that was that that elk moment. I mean, I'm such an elk guy. And you, and that uh, was that was really cool little video. First of all, but I loved how you showed that that yeah. wasn't just one moment. You showed up one morning and this elk crossed the river, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, that was really getting that still. As far as like a still image goes, um, that might be what my just like most rewarding experience. Um, everything just came together perfectly that morning, um, and it was either sitting in a blind and very cold. Uh, and then you just like, yeah, the, the first group of elk crossed behind me and it was like, I can, I can hear them. I only had one opening and I was looking out the front and I thought they were going to step on me. Oh. Um, and then I heard them get in the water and it, they couldn't have been like four feet behind my blind. And I was like, you cannot be serious. I just like, I walked like two steps too far <laughs> today. <Yeah>. And then <laughs> a second bull with a whole uh, new harem came and, and crossed the river right in front of me. So that was special and i've been able to shoot that on you know now on video too and i've done a lot of long lens work with that um and that's been yeah that's yeah, definitely one of my favorite things to shoot it's yeah i mean that it's just such an exciting time of year once they start bugling and you get that fog in the morning yeah yeah it's, it's every- hard to beat fall out there in the greater yellowstone like september october is just it's absolutely magical yeah yeah it's everything that, it's all of it right it's the cool mornings yeah. the colors the everything mm-hmm. yeah. yeah so jake for for us newbies to camera trapping where would you suggest what's a what's a good way to start to sure. kind of just break the ice for yourself because it is i get um you know i'll have 20 red fox dens and mm-hmm. five or six swift fox dens every year and i've always thought about trying to catch the trails coming to or from the den uh, where the adults are bringing food and and yeah. leave a camera trap out there because I can do it on private land. But what's the best way to start? I would start with either either Cognosis or Contraptions. You can get on their websites um, and just get. Uh, I would start probably start with a passive sensor, just one passive sensor, and start with one camera and start small, and then. You know, once you feel comfortable with that, maybe add some flashes to it if you want. I mean, every little layer that you add is, you know, tenfold in complexity and issues that arise from it. So I think just getting the fundamentals down, learning your camera. Every camera is so different um, in the settings, and you're going to have to go deep, sometimes deep into the menu settings and find some weird, quirky things that, you know, are going to make that camera work with that system well. And so just taking the time to do that and, and do it in a place that's accessible for you, like, don't don't go set your first camera out like somewhere that you're not you're not going to be back for a month like put it in your backyard somewhere that you can go the next day and learn from it because the more the more you can visit it the quicker you're going to learn and the more you can and and, you know see what's going wrong and do some problem solving 
you have to you have to expect that there are going to be issues though, and you have to lean into that as part of the process. Um, it's really about like getting into a mindset that's you're not getting frustrated, you're not like overwhelmed. You just you, you know there's a, there's always a solution, and you have to just take a very methodical approach to it. Um, and it's really it's really enjoyable for me. It's it's like almost like a meditation for me. It's got to be like mm-hmm. a challenge, right? It's got to yeah. be like I am gonna get this. I'm gonna figure it out. Yeah, and... that's right. Yeah. yeah, I think, you know, in in Wyoming, a good place for, and I'm, I was asking for myself, obviously, but also for our listeners. And, you know, one thing that would be really easy place to test it is on a water hole, mm-hmm. you know, with prong, you're going to get prong, yeah. you know that, uh, but you probably get coyotes, you may get swift fox, you may get some grouse. Badgers. Um, Badgers, yeah, there's a lot of opportunity on a water hole in the Western Plains where it's dry anyway. Mm-hmm. So that's, yeah, you know, and they're, they're all over the place. You just have to find those little pockets. Is it best to start out with the thought process of getting stills and then move your way into video? Or would you say, nah, just start with videos, just start figuring this out. And, you know, the wave of the future is video for the most part i mean if you're looking for something for instagram or whatever would you just say go into video and do it or better to start with stills and and perfect that uh that's a good question i in some ways it might be better to start with stills i mean i that's what i did um because you have to get one particular thing perfect um and i think that's just a maybe a good way to start um i don't know that it's not black and white you could certainly do do it either way and that's really just a setting on the camera, right? You're just going in. Your sensors are going to work the same way. It's just telling the camera, or the camera just needs to know when it's mm-hmm. triggered. Oh, that, it's going right. to shoot a still yeah. or shoot a video, right? Exactly. That's right. Yeah. I I want to play with it. It's uh, I've done a little bit, but not enough. Not yeah. on your level. You talk to you, and you get excited. You're like, oh man, this would be so cool. I'm going to go set up. You know, for me, three, yeah, three would be a lot, right? Three would be yeah. like, oh, this mm-hmm. this would be a blast. But yeah. I can't imagine managing 30 cameras out in the field in a couple of different locations and trying to make sure yeah. that they're all firing. And with video, do you use any artificial light or is it all natural? Sometimes, sometimes, uh, I would say for the most part, no, if, if we can avoid it, but, uh, I really like doing that, uh, and getting very creative with it. I try, I mean, I basically treat it like lighting a, like a movie, like a Hollywood set. So I get very creative with it. Um, but a lot of the times you just, well, for one, when you're adding light, it's also, uh, it's, it's something that's changing in the environment. So it is, it depends on your, your subject. So like, you know, if they walk in and all of a sudden lights come on, it does like a lot of times make them pause and say, Hmm, something's weird here. And so for that reason, if, if, if the stakes are high and like, it's a behavior that I think I can get without lighting, sometimes I won't do it. And also it just looks very natural, you know, if you could just use using natural light. So, but sometimes if it's completely nocturnal behavior, you just, you have to do it. Huh? So if you're going to set up a camera trap, would you recommend building your own box? Like go buy a Pelican case and cut it out and do it that way? Or is it best just to say, you know what, I'm going to bite the bullet. I'm going to spend whatever a thousand bucks or whatever. That uh, honestly, is. I just would buy the enclosure because you don't come out that, that, far ahead by building your own it, it depends on what you're like if you have a really custom need sometimes you, you customize a box but um the cognizance boxes 
it's it's not i don't think it's overpriced for what it is so so this mm-hmm. might be a a proprietary question and if it is you don't have to mm-hmm. answer it but do you run on like are you setting aperture priority i mean yeah or are you just setting manual and saying i'm going for this lighting condition and this is the setting and if i get it i get it or if i don't i don't uh, i do both really uh, I hate to say this again, but it depends. Uh, and I really do. I really do use both. And That's totally. why he has 30 cameras. Uh, like, obviously, when you're shooting video, you, the one thing that you can't fl- – your, your shutter needs to stay fixed. Right. And so you, so that's – you know. whereas like if you're shooting stills and you're trapping, you have a lot more. Like you can approach it. People do a lot of different things there depending like on what their needs are. If you're going to fix your shutter speed, do you let the ISO float or will you let the app float? I usually – I usually let the ISO float. Yeah. And sometimes I float both, but never, obviously never the shutter. Man, you do have so a little much. shutter. You do have a little aperture like flicker, but that's like, you can take care of that. Like a post house can take care of that. So, and what you mean by that is if it's like, if the animal's starting out in the light and it's exposed for that, exactly. but then it comes into mm-hmm. a shaded area and you're going to see that mm-hmm. adjustment in the camera, but you exactly. can fix that in post or they, yeah, if, they, if, if the not, shot's cool enough, they're going to fix it. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. But it's like, sometimes I just, if I can just use ISO, I just do that. Um, so that I don't have to deal with that flicker. And then do you set limitations on that? Like a high and a low or will you let it go to on the low? ISO? Yeah. I, I cap it. Um, I usually always, I always cap it on, but you know, some, every camera has a different, um, limit you know what's acceptable and every producer has a different uh, idea of what's acceptable for noise right so you know it depends on if it's like if it's an individual doing it too like where you don't want to you don't want to go and do a bunch of heavy noise reduction and premiere and you just want to have something that looks good out of camera then like maybe you're not going to let it go as high so are there times when you'll be getting video when your ISO's mat capped and you're overexposed, or will the is a camera smart enough to if it meets that cap and it's no longer exposing property to not take the shot? Does that make sense? Will it just record no matter what, or and it's going to take footage and, and eat up memory card space and burn battery, or will it know that it, it's above that not exposed property and not video? Oh, uh, the camera is not that smart. No. Okay, I just was curious. I yeah. was just curious. Right? Yeah. So you have yeah. So you have a lot of clips that are not good light. Okay. Perfect. Or that are black. <laughs> Those got to be the heartbreakers too, right? Where you're, it's that Christmas morning and you're looking at your footage and you're like, there's a black one. And then I got nothing else. Well, you know, yeah, a lot of the times if it's cats, you're like, yeah, like we didn't have anything in the day, you know, for the past month, but here's like a couple that are like 2 a.m. I think I probably know who that was. Yeah. And sometimes you'll have trail cams out too that you can reference to see what came through and stuff like that. Or sometimes you'll have moonlight and you can see what it was. It's just not usable footage. Right. Yeah. But these production houses, they know that this is not an exact science. So it sounds to me like when we were yeah. talking earlier, they'll give you a year or a two years in some cases to capture a sequence because it does take time. Is that true or is that or do they just say you got 30 days um, to do this? I yeah, I think, well, every producer is different and, and every budget is different. So um it's great when you get to work with somebody who uh, thinks big and lets you where you or I feel like I can just go out there and really do anything I want, like anything I can dream up. Those are the most exciting sheets for me to work on. 
Uh, and, and that just also involves giving you the time you need to get it done. So I, if I can say, look, this is, if you want to leave them out for a year, I need to be there every six to eight weeks and they're willing to do that. Then I'm stoked to be on that project because I know I will get the best results that I can get. So other times you're just, you're in situations where it's nobody's fault, but you're just scheduling is tight and you just like, for whatever reason, you've got a week to just get what you can and, I don't like being in that situation. Sometimes I will do it, but yeah. Fascinating. It is totally fascinating. It's pretty cool <laughs> stuff. I mean, it should be something yeah. for our audience where you can just look at the opportunities, but with the opportunities come many, many months or years of just knowledge base. Sure. You know, just creating that knowledge base to feel confident enough to, tell bbc or nat geo hey i can do this and i'm gonna nail it mm -hmm. yeah Whew. yeah this is definitely find, no matter what you're doing you just got to get out there and find time to put your own time in i mean that's just what that's what i did was i mean i and i really enjoyed the workshop business and i still have that that business going um but you know everything else i did was really a means to just enable me to put the time in that I need, I knew I needed to put in to do what I wanted to do with this. So where can people find out about your workshops? So the, the ones that you still have going. So revealedinnature.com is the website that is a bit outdated. Um, the past couple of years have been, have gotten away from me. So it's, but it's actually going through a big a rehab right now. So, but that, that's the place to go. So I actually work, the, the workshop business is um, changing a bit. So I still lead trips, but I also work with some other guides, um, some other photographers. And so there's, uh, we offer trips in the greater Yellowstone and also doing uh, some stuff in Central and South America coming up. So all that will be on the website uh, within the next like month or two. And is this just photographic workshops or do you do video workshops and then do you do camera trap workshops or is it just one? So, thing? yeah, these, these are just photographic workshops at the, at, for the time being, but um, maybe down the road there might be some video ones, but yeah. I'm sensing a camera trap workshop. That's what I'm sensing. All right. <laughs> <laughs> if we get enough interest. Yeah. Well, you got three right here. There you go. <laughs> We need to each have three. It's a 60 day workshop. Yeah, right. 60 day <laughs> workshop. <laughs> All right. And that'll get your feet wet. Yeah. Just that'll just barely get you frustrated. Yeah. Well, Jake, I, I know the two guys that recommended you as a guest on the podcast. We, we've asked about, you know, camera trapping and tried to find somebody that we could get on that, that was experienced. And, and both of these guys said, yeah, you got to talk to Jake. He's, cool. he's the guy and, and yeah. they were not wrong. I'll say that it's been, it's been Thank fun you. to visit with you about this. And this yeah, is something it. that it's kind of an opportunity for everybody to spread their wings a little bit and try something new, mm -hmm. no matter what equipment you've got. And if you've got that camera that you're thinking about getting rid of, you know, maybe this is something that you do instead of, instead Total. of selling it. You're not going to get that much for it anyway. <laughs> <laughs> right. Uh, Jake, thanks a ton for your time. And, and I know, you know, you've got a lot going on. We've been trying to make this work for a couple of weeks now, but I appreciate you being patient, hanging with us and, yeah, uh, and making it work when you did have a little bit of a break. And again, revealed in nature on Instagram, revealed in nature.com. 
and then are you on do you have a facebook presence as well uh no not to speak of okay so yeah but you do have so instagram those, yeah. but i do have instagram yeah. and, and the website yep both and we'll those. link to all those in the show notes so if anybody wants to go look Great. and then maybe if you have some pictures of the middens uh, mm-hmm. you know, some of those classic shots, just cause I think it's a hard thing to yeah. picture in your mind until you actually see it, then that would be cool. Sure. And then anything else, totally, yeah. obviously they can get some stuff from your website, but if you could send us a yeah. few pictures to put on the show notes page, that would be spectacular. Yep. You got it. You I was thinking it. of a good descriptor. And I think the best one that I came up with was it is the spot you find in the forest where you want to take a nap. <laughs> <laughs> That's yeah, I think so. <laughs> Until that bear comes walking up to you. <laughs> Until the bear sneaks in. I would say it's probably, yeah, exactly. It's probably not the place in the forest you should take a nap. <laughs> but it, but it'll look com- comfortable yeah. enough. Yeah. <laughs> That's right. I bet that was a crazy experience, that bear walking up to you, just kind of like checking yeah. you out. And <laughs> yeah. No, I've had them, you know, I've walked in and had them, you know, right there and they stand up. Because it's, it's pretty dense forest, so if it's like harsh light, you, you like, scope it out and you make noise, but sometimes you walk in on them more vice versa, but never had a problem. Never, yeah. never like, you know, just talk to them. They're pretty responsive and they back off. I mean, sometimes they, they linger, like they really want to come in, but never, never aggressive. So hmm. that's cool. Yeah. <laughs> it's gotta be cool to be sitting here talking to us on a podcast, knowing that your cameras are out there working. Right. <laughs> yeah, it's a, it's that's like, what my friend said on <laughs> It was working with me on one of these last shoots. It was like we left thirty of them out there, and he's like, "Man, it's just like we just employed thirty cameramen and we just left them." <laughs> <laughs> That's like now making money while you sleep, and, yeah. and you don't have to pay them. <laughs> right. <laughs> you just have to buy them outright. Yeah. <laughs> yeah That's crazy. Awesome. Well, thanks, guys. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. Thank it. you. Thank you very much, and look forward to getting this one out. And, and look forward to getting with you in the field one of these days, too, hopefully. Yeah, let's do it. Let's do All it. Right. Stay in touch. Thanks, Jake. You've been listening to the Wild and Exposed podcast. If you haven't yet, please give us a rating and a review. And make sure you're subscribed so that you'll get every episode we produce as soon as we drop it. And as always, thanks for tuning in. We're gonna make it someday. Nothing's gonna get in our way. Mm-mm. Round around the world we'll go.